Hello, this is Flugus Darius with another episode of the Close Call Podcast. A podcast that makes you aware of what's going on by stories that tell people that narrowly escape close calls. We hope you enjoyed the first episode. This is episode number two, and I'm sure you'll have a very, very memorable time listening to the Close Call Podcast by Flugus Darius. Thank you. I was about 19 at the time. The year was around 77, 78. I went to see a friend of mine up in college. Me and his brother drove up to Macomb, Illinois to visit him in the college campus and uh, stayed there for a few days. He was studying in the ministry at the time, so we went to church with him that Sunday. Of course, I brought my guitar along, played in the service. Um, The pastor really liked it. Wanted me to stay, but I said, well, I got to get back to St. Louis. So me and uh, my friend drove back to St. Louis. And uh, on the way there, his car broke down. I guess we were about 30, 40 miles out of town when the car broke down. He had issues with his legs, so he couldn't walk. And we stayed out there, and nobody stopped for us. So I said, well, I guess I'm just going to have to walk to town, to the next town, a gas station, whatever, try to get us some help. We were stuck in the middle of nowhere. And I started walking. And I walked. And I walked. And uh, it seemed like the darkness was just closing in on me as I walked down that dark highway. No lights. Uh, Wilderness to the right. Wilderness to the left. You know, we were in the Midwest, but we weren't in the part of the Midwest where there are a lot of farms and cornfields. We were just stuck out there where there was just a lot of greenery. And at night, You don't know what could jump out on you, you know. And I'm walking. It's in the 70s. I'm in platform shoes. Believe it or not, walking. And uh, it's just a very torturous journey. I believe that night I learned something about myself that I probably would never, ever have learned. I mean, I walked and walked and I walked. I mean, it was just, was just, I didn't really even know where I was going. 
And I began to pray and ask God to keep me safe and give me the strength just to carry on, you know, and just keep walking. And I just continued to walk. I would see an occasional light off in the distance or a, a home somewhere, but I was not going to go up to people's uh, house and ask them for help and on a night like that. Back in those days, it could be dangerous for a black guy in that territory. So I just kept walking. And uh, you just wouldn't believe how many hours I walked. It was just no no towns or nothing in the area, no gas stations, no businesses. And I just walked. After, I guess it maybe, I don't even remember how many hours. And, and it wasn't like I was walking and stopping and sitting down resting either. I was scared to do that. Because there were no lights out there. I guess I must hit the next town at least no no more than four hours later. I, I know I walked at least four or five hours and um, without stopping. And so I, when I saw that I was coming into a town, I was so happy to see another city. I just really became careless and really didn't think much about what I was doing. I just wanted to walk and uh, just talk to another human being. So I walked into the city, this little really small town. To this day, I don't even know where it was at. And uh, I walked in town. The bar was just closing. And so there was a bunch of guys outside, a bunch of white guys, you know, looked like farmers and workers and everything. And here I am, a black guy, in the middle of the night, walking up in their town I think they were so surprised. You know, I have the platform shoes on, bell bottoms, whatever. They were so shocked that they just stood there and just looked at me. And uh, I just walked up to them and I said, pardon me, sir, uh, could you all direct me to the nearest telephone? And the guy just pointed across the street. And I said, thank you. And I just kind of walked away and, you know, walked over to the phone. And I made some calls. And uh, I told people where I was at. I called a pastor at church. And I called my friend that was in college. And uh, they said, well, where are you at? I said, well, 
I don't quite know where I'm at, but I guess I'm about 10 miles uh, from where the car was left. I I had no idea where I was at, but I I did see, I think I remember seeing the name of the city or, or something or maybe asking somebody and they told me, oh my goodness. So I'm in the phone booth talking. I got off the phone and I'm just, I think I was just standing in the phone booth. And uh, I didn't come out of the phone booth. And they were, the guys across the street were, were just beginning to, you know, the shock was beginning to wear off. And uh, a truck pulled up on the side of the uh, telephone booth. And there was a a young white guy in there. I guess he was around my age. And he said, hey. He opened the door and he said, I need you to stoop down, crawl out of there and get in my car right now. So I stooped down. I didn't hesitate. And I crawled in his car and shut the truck. And he pulled off. And I was like, wow. I said, well, what was that about? He said, keep your head down. I kept my head down. And then we pulled out. And I, then I sat up and he said, man, do you know those guys had plans on stringing you up back there? They were they were talking about really doing something to you. I was like, really? He said, yeah, they were going to get you, man. And uh, he said, you're going to come stay with me tonight and you just call your people and tell them where I'm at and they'll come and get you tomorrow. But uh, you're going to stay with me tonight. Thank God took me home. His parents weren't at home. Weren't at home. He took me home. Fed me. Made me a cot on the floor. Um... We talked for a couple of hours. We got to know each other. And he was telling me that, you know, I was the black first black person that he had ever met in person. This is 1978 or somewhere around in there. He said, you know, I've seen black people on television. He said, but I never met anybody black in my life. He said, but I saw you. He said, you, you just looked different to me. You look like you were a good guy, and I believe you were a good guy. And <clears throat> I just <clears throat> really with God put on my heart to do this because I was scared for you. <clears throat> and he uh, he fed me. I called my people. I went to sleep. Woke up the next morning. We ate breakfast. People came. Well, the pastor came. They drove down, picked me up at about 10, 11 o'clock the next day. And I had I had his phone number. And when I went home, 
I told my mother about the incident. And we called him. And my mother thanked him for helping me. That was how America was in those days. We had tensions and and problems and issues. But I never forgot that young man. You know, both of us were young guys. I could have gotten killed or beat up or hurt. Even before I got to that town, I could have got attacked by something, you know. But he was such a nice guy to do that. And I thought about reparations for slavery. And that impacted my life so much that I said, you know what? I was like 19. I was like, man, I just can't hate white people for slavery. I've got to have a different outlook on them because of what he did. He was white. He knew I was black. But he saved my life. He saved me from a lot of trouble. And I know God put him there for that reason. And that wasn't the last time I've had help on the highway in situations like that, but that was the most impactful. And I'm really thankful to the God to this day. And I'm thankful for that experience because it just let me know that there are a lot of good people out here. It's still today with all this division and strife going on. I always run into white people and black people and people of all races that let me know that there are good people out here. There are great people out here. There are people that'll reach out their hand to you if they see you in trouble. Let's try to make sure we're one of those people when we see somebody in a desperate situation. And I and I tell you, I don't let people in my car. I don't stop for hitchhikers nowadays. Things are different back then. You can't do that now like you used to. You know, I don't stop and give people money when they are begging. I just, it's such a, a dangerous time. You don't know what people are going to do. But every now and then you're going to run into a case where a person can't do what they need to do to make it without your help. Every now and then you're going to run into a situation where somebody really needs you. And at the time, you know, you're the person that's there. Try to be the person like this young man was to help me. And now let's spread that on.
This is a story that I told my two sons when they were uh, entering their uh, young adolescent years. And I've told this story to a lot of middle school boys. Uh, And I think it's a story that every young man needs to hear before he becomes a full-fledged teenager because it deals with an issue that many young men will have to deal with in one way or the other. And uh, it can help them be able to handle themselves in certain situations because we have to educate our kids. Not just uh, academically, but we have to educate them in other ways. Um, Circumstances are the result of choices. And in our society today, even when I was coming up, you know, back in the 70s, your circumstances were determined by the choices that you made. And uh, some things uh, can't be helped, but then there are some things that may be a little outside of your range to grasp the understanding of what situation you're dealing with, but you still are going to have to make a decision on which way you're going to go when you're confronted with certain things. So, this is my junior year in high school. I was having a good time. I was going to school and half a day uh, I would go to a technical institution to learn a technical trade. My preference was commercial art because I wanted to be an artist. But I was at this point in my life, music was beginning to take over. So, you know, I was playing my uh, guitar, interested in music. I was still doing art. And in the evening, I would go and work at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, downtown, so I was a happy kid, you know, because I had a job, I had money, I could buy clothes, and I could help my mother out a little bit, so it was a great time. Uh, Worked with some great guys. I was the only black kid working there, and at that time, St. Louis was kind of polarized, but I went to Catholic school most of my life, so I was used to kind of dealing with people of different cultures. And at that time, St. Louis is basically black and white kids of different, you know, European backgrounds. So we knew how to kind of get along, but this particular job, you know, we we were teenagers, you know. I was a guitar player. I was playing a lot of rock music, and they knew it, and you know, they just, it, it wasn't a color issue with us. We were just, we were just having fun, man. You know, we would come in and we had a young manager. He would kind of let us take the run of the place. And, 
He knew what we knew. He knew that we knew what we were doing, and he trusted us. And uh, we just had a ball, man. It was a good time, you know. I was always going to concerts, you know. I wasn't driving my car yet. I wasn't able to drive yet, but I was catching a bus everywhere at that time. We had a good transit system. I could work, get off at 9 o'clock on Fridays and go down to the Ambassador Theater, downtown St. Louis, and go and see anybody from KISS. To, uh, I think I saw, yeah, I saw uh, Frank Zappa, saw KISS, I saw Kansas. I saw some great concerts, you know. Um, and, and it was just a great time, you know. So, my manager came to me one day and he said, hey, uh, Ed, we we want you to uh, see if some of your friends want a job down here, man. We, we need some people. So, check, you know, at your school, see if you got any friends that uh, would like a job. Well, at that time, uh, me and uh, uh, a black girl, Naomi, beautiful chick, we were the only blacks working there. So I was like, okay. So I spread the word around and I ran into a friend of mine that I had um, known since junior high school. Me and him were pretty tight. We went to a uh, country day together. That's a prep school. Doing, well, you know, he was a super athlete, real smart guy. But I figured, you know, he said, yeah, he needed a job. He had a car also. I said, yeah, man, uh, come on down and uh, I'll introduce you to my manager. And we'll, uh, we'll do that. So Richard came down, man, and uh, met my manager. They liked him. We started working, he, you know, started training them, teaching them jobs. He was there for about a couple of weeks. Uh, by the way, you know, he was a he was an excellent athlete. And so <clears throat> he was very popular at school. He had grown to be kind of celebrity over to school. Everybody looked up to him because he was such a devastating basketball player. I mean, he... He was a junior, but he was playing varsity, and he had led us to a championship, so he was very popular. <laughs> so I, and I have known him since we were younger, so, you know, I knew he was a good guy. So he got the job. We, a lot of times we worked the same night. Sometimes we didn't. But one Friday night, me and couple of guys that work with me, they were around my age, white guys, and, and Richard. Uh <clears throat> said, well, instead of us going uh going home, you know, let's let's drive around and have some fun, you know. Went, okay, good. So he got in his car, you know, we took some food when we clocked out, got in the car and left, drove around. And uh, we ended up driving around this area called Tower Grove in St. Louis. And uh, there was a park there. So we're driving through the park, you know. 
and we see this girl, and she's walking, and she's stoned. You could tell she was stoned out of her mind. She was just, she was gone. Completely uh, stoned out. So she was walking around, and she waved us down. She said, hey, can you guys help me? You know, I, you know, she was kind of talking uh, incoherently, whatever. We looked at each other, you know. She was a nice-looking girl, too. And uh, I think she was either Italian or German or something. We didn't know, so we said, okay, well. She said, yeah, let her get in. So she got in the back seat with me and one of the white guys. And you know, she sat next to me. She's in and out, she dozing. I could see that she was nailed. I think she may have taken some LSD or something. So we were driving around and and um, we didn't know what to do. Actually, you know, we were young. We didn't know what to do. So. Richard said, hey, let's take her uh, over here behind the hospital and we can have sex with her. And she she was so stoned, she didn't even, I don't think she even heard what we were saying or she either didn't understand what we were saying or she didn't care. So, uh, my antenna started going up when he said that. I was like, whoa. And two white guys that were with us, uh, Lonnie and Mick, were like, oh, oh, what? And for some reason, you know, Richard was just like, that's the thing to do. You know, it was just the obvious thing to do for him. And so, on the way there, you know, I'm looking at her and uh, I'm beginning to feel real eerie about this whole situation. So, he pulled behind the hospital in a little dark uh, parking lot. He got out the car we all got out the car. He sat on the hood of the car and uh, opened her legs, pulled out his penis, and he was pulling her down towards him. And I was like, oh, whoa, wait a minute, bro. Well, I didn't say wait a minute, bro, because we didn't say that back then. But I said, hey, man, wait a minute. And he was, he was like, what? I said, man, if you're going to do that, uh, you take me home first. I don't think I want to be a part of this. He said, man, sh- shut the fuck up. What are you talking about, man? I said, brother, I am not going to be a part of this, man. I just don't feel good about this. And he really was about to forcefully uh, put himself inside her. I was like, pushed him back. I was like, man, I told you, take me home. 
two white guys standing back just watching. And, you know, Richard knew me. He knew I could whoop him. So he just reluctantly said, damn. Hey, man, why would you do that, man? You a punk. So you call me what I, what you want to call me, man. Take this girl back where you picked her up. And, you know, if you want to come back and do that by yourself, that's perfectly fine. But I'm not going to stay here and let you do that with me standing here because I don't, I, I don't feel comfortable with it. Oh, man, he was hot. He was pissed. And he did exactly, yeah, okay, now go down this street. I forced them to take her back where she was supposed to, uh, where, well, where we found her. We took her to the exact same spot. Then we dropped the other guys off. And then I, we went home. I went home. I didn't care what he thought. You know, I was like, yeah, I know. He gonna give it to me at school, you know. Sure enough, next day, I went to high school. We in the cafeteria. He got a big table full of people, and he telling them about what I did. Yeah, he didn't even want the pussy, man. He was that, and I was like, oh, you know, I didn't say much, cause I felt like. Inside my heart, I felt like I had done the right thing. So, I really didn't care what he said. But I was an unusual kid. I was just like that. That was just my personality, you know. And I didn't even understand the repercussions of what had just happened. <clears throat> didn't understand. But we're going to flip two years later. Okay. We out of high school. We were uh, all going to college. I got a scholarship. Richard got a scholarship. He turned out to be one of the biggest basketball stars that St. Louis ever produced. He went to school, went on a college campus, had a great career ahead of him, hooked up with one of the girls on the campus. He was the only black guy there. Hooked up with a white girl. Did the same thing, only this time. He raped her. And the big, big mess. It was, it was, uh, It was so ironic because I ran into him over the summer when I came home from school. And he told me what happened. And he had lost his scholarship because of that. But they, he said they wanted to lock me up, but you know, the principal and the parents of the girl were so, you know, like enamored by his talent that they kind of let him off the hook. And he, they let him come back home instead of putting him in jail. That was a different era, you know, that was a different time. You could get away with more. They probably didn't want to drag their daughter through the whole uh, 
criminal process or pressing charges or whatever. But my point is that, you know, I didn't understand why this guy was so anxious to to just do something like that to somebody that was drugged until that happened. And then it hit me. I said, wow, this dude was a rapist all the time. You know, he, he probably felt like he could take it whenever he wanted it because, you know, most of the girls was making a big thing out of him anyway. And, you know, he was popular. And he was headed for, definitely headed for the NBA. So he was arrogant and, uh, you know, kind of, into itself and so uh, felt like he could take it so it, it, it was it was a lesson to me it was an important lesson to me as I grew up after that when I find myself in situations with, with females I told my sons hey don't be so quick to whip your penis out just because you can. Every time you take your Johnson out of your pants, there's some kind of price that you're going to have to pay for it. It might be high. It might be low. It might cost you your butt, but Think before you take your penis out and stick it in somebody. Because that's one act that could get you in a lot of trouble. And I had another friend that worked for the gas company. And, you know, he would go door to door. And at this time, you know, if a woman, if, if a person uh, <clears throat> was behind on a gas bill, a gas man could come by and kind of negotiate arrangements for you to pay your bill before he turned it off. But most of the people that, you know, they went to, they were supposed to turn the gas off. Unless she could come up with some money or some type of story that was valid for him to call in and, you know, give them an extension on the, on the bill. Well, this guy, name was Buddy, he was going door to door seducing women. And he told me, he said, yeah. Man, it's so easy to do. All I have to do is just, you know, knock on the door. She answers. If she got on a gown and she opens that door, 95% of the time, she wants some action. She's ready to do something. So all I have to do is, you know, be a little aggressive with her. Grab her, start kissing her, feeling on her, and next thing you know, I already got it and left. 
make the adjustments on our bill. And he did that a lot of times and got away with it. Well, he said one particular day, he approached a woman and she went along with it until he penetrated her. And when he penetrated her, she told him to stop. And he was, you know, he couldn't stop. He was already there. And so, you know, he finished with her and she was pissed. She told him, get off me. He said, but what? She upset, irate. And she called his job before he got back and told him that he raped her. So now they have to get the lawyers and the union involved. And, you know, he was just really upset that his wife picked him up. And when his wife came to pick him up, he said, well, I got to go back and have a meeting. And uh, so you, you go home until I call you, until you come and get me. And she was like, what's wrong, buddy? And he was like, God, uh, he spilled the beans on himself. And he told her what happened because he didn't know what the outcome was gonna be. So he told her everything. Went to the meeting, they had a lawyer there, they got the girl there, had a bunch of, uh, Union people, union reps there. They discussed it, made the girl an offer, kind of scared her in the back and off, gave her some money. He was out of it, kept his job, he didn't have a problem. They didn't expect him to tell his wife, but he had already told her. Their relationship was never the same after that. And so, I tell people about this, tell young men about this, because it's a thin line between taking sex from a woman and her consensually giving it to you. And when that line becomes blurred, you're in trouble. So you need to think before you leap. That's what I told my sons. Neither one of those guys ever was the same after after they had those uh, incidents. I, I, I would see Richard around the city. Uh, he never had a successful career at all. He kind of went down the tubes after that. Uh, my other friend, Buddy, he Oxy passes a church, but I hope that he's got his sex drive in check because that could be a mess. But I, I would advise any young man to avoid that close call.
Coming up, I had a baby face. Kind of innocent, smiling face. Sweet face, you know, I was the fat jaws. You know, women used to like to squeeze my jaws. I, I just had a lot of misinterpretation when it came to my age or when it came to my uh, um, maturity. Because when I was in high school, I looked like I was in grade school. And when I was in college, I looked like I was in middle school. I was just, when I got to be 30, people thought I was 17. So, you know, in the world of adults, in the world of, you know, hardcore people like in St. Louis, and uh, I guess, you know, around some of the occupations that I had coming up, it was it was rough for me, you know. It was rough for me because I had to prove myself. A lot of times I had to prove myself through force. So by the time I got to be, I say I guess around nine or ten years old, I used to like to scrap. I didn't mind fighting because I had been fighting since I was a little four or five-year-old kid because everybody thought I was some type of little cute play toy to play with. And so I had to prove myself all the time. It was through force. I got to be pretty good with my hands. You know what I mean? I got to be pretty good with throwing people and wrestling and that type of thing. Of course, in St. Louis at that time, I was coming up as a kid, wrestling at the chase was starting, and, and it was big in St. Louis. So I learned all of the holes and all of the ways to flip and throw people. And when we got to, you know, middle school or high school, the Bruce Lee thing was popular, so I learned some karate. You know, Muhammad Ali was our hero, so I learned how to fight. And I was from the projects, so we had to fight. But that didn't change the fact that I was walking around there looking like a little sweet angel in the face and dealing with, you know, raw dog thugs and, you know, hardcore people, you know? And uh, it just, I guess it threw people for a curve because I... I wasn't what I looked like. And so, that brings me to this story. I really wanted to work when I was a kid, you know. I used to look for these summer jobs when school let out. Because my father really didn't like to give us a lot of money. My mother didn't have any money. So, you know, I was tired of being broke. So, you know, I wasn't going to go and do anything criminal. I thought the the wisest thing to do is just to find a job and work, you know, and make a living. So, 
I went to the employment office when I was about 14 years old. You know, I didn't know that you really can't officially get anything through the employment office until you 18 or 16 at the youngest. I was so desperate. I got out there when I was like 14 or 15. I guess I was about 15. I went to the unemployment office and uh, the lady lady said, can I help you? I was like, yeah, I'm looking for a job. She was like, well, I tell you what, go over to the apprenticeship program over there and see if, if, if Carl has something for you over there. So I went over to where this guy was standing in, you know, his offices, said apprenticeship and uh, journeyman programs. So I went over there and he said, yes, uh, you looking for a job? I was like, yes, sir. He said, oh, okay. Have you ever painted? I was like, uh, no, but I can learn. Yeah, that's what, it, that's what we're here for, to teach you how to, you know, paint. So... Uh, let's see. How soon you want to work? I said, as soon as possible. Okay, I'll tell you what. I got a job coming up on Sunday. Need somebody to help me. So you meet me on Grand and Olive at 3 o'clock. And I'll give you a paint job. How did that sound? I was like, that sounds good. Like, okay, you make your little money and, you know, learn the trade at the same time. Uh, yes, sir, I appreciate it. So I went home, got the bus home, told my father, I said, you know what? I think I got a job. He said, oh, really? He said, yeah, I'm going to be painting. This dude down at the employment office told me that he was going to give me a job. I said, okay. My dad said, so, uh, when will you start? I said, well, I supposed to start on Sunday. She said, Sunday? I said, yeah, Sunday. You gonna be painting on Sunday? I said, that's what he said. So where's this job at? I said, well, he told me to meet him on the corner of Olive and Grand on Sunday. He said, you know, I supposed to meet him inside the Woolworths there. My father was like, mm, that don't sound right. He said, I don't normally know of anybody working on Sunday doing paint jobs. I thought, well, that's what he said. I said, if you don't believe him, then come go take me down there. And you go with me, and then we'll see if this dude is for real or not. And, but, you know, my father was laying up with his girlfriend. He didn't want to deal with that. He's like, no. You go down there and check it out yourself. But you tell that dude, when you get down there, you got to call home and tell your father where you at because he wants you to check in with him to make sure everything is okay. I was like, all right. So, Sunday came. Put on my little paint clothes that I thought would be good to paint in. And uh, got on the bus, went down on Grand. Three o'clock, sure enough, he was there. Hey, man, what's happening? I was like, oh, ain't nothing happening. Hey, you, you ready to go? I was like, yes, sir. Hey, wait a minute. And another thing my father told me, he's like, don't take nothing from him. If he offer you anything, don't take nothing from him. 
I'm going to give you some money to go down there and get you something to eat with. But don't take anything from him except for the pay. I was like, all right. So I got on the, uh, the bus, went down there. He's, yeah, let's, you ready? Yeah. Hey, you want a hot dog or a hamburger or something? I'm like, no, sir, I don't want nothing. I'm just ready to go to work. Okay. Okay, that sounds good. You ready, huh? I'm like, yes, sir. Okay. You see down there? See that tall building down there? I was like, uh-huh. Okay, now that's where I live. So we got to walk down there. It was about two or three blocks. Got to walk down there, get the painting equipment, and then we can go and do the job. I was like, okay. Called. We walked down there. He's talking. I'm not really listening, you know. I'm excited to get this job and make this money. I'm thinking about the stuff I can buy, whatever. We get to the apartment building, look inside. Man, it's like very posh, luxurious place. It's got the uh, really nice elevators going up. And, you know, mostly white people in there. This is like 73. It's like one of the top, most exclusive um apartment complexes in St. Louis at that time. You know, I think they call it the the Lindo Towers or something like that. But it was it was it was top notch. So we talking, we get on the elevator. Yeah, well, you know, we gotta go up to my apartment and blah blah blah. I'm on the top floor, so okay, so he's talking and everything. And uh I'm not really listening. I'm just got my mind on one thing, getting this over with. And, you know, a bunch of white people get on the elevator. He's still talking, yeah, and such and so and so, blah, blah, blah. And I'm listening. Then all of a sudden, when the people got off the elevator to about the fifth or sixth floor, and we was on the elevator by ourselves, that's when his whole demeanor changed. He went from, yeah, man, we're going to go there to, okay, I'm on the f- top floor. Come on. I was like, what the? I noticed that. So we got off the elevator. I'm down here. Like this dude switching and everything. I said, I'm in trouble. So we get to the apartment. Come on in. Got in here. Nice apartment. Real to real tape recorder at that time. That was like a sign of affluence. You know, baby grand piano. Everything just elegantly in place. Paintings. It was just a really laid out apartment. You know, it was like a nice pad that they call, as they called it at that time. It was Nice crib. So he said, oh, do you need anything? I was like, no. Uh, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to go in the back room and get this this stuff together. And you just relax and make yourself comfortable. I'm like, All right. So I'm like, I got to figure out what's up with this dude. Because I'm getting a bad vibe from him. <laughs> so... Uh, so he, he 
he stayed back there for an unusually long time. And it made me kind of uncomfortable. And so, I think I yelled back, if I remember, uh, are we going to be painting anytime soon? He's like, yeah, yeah, hold on, let me come in here. Let me put some music on. He came in, turned on the reel to reel. This dude was playing Barbara Streisand the way we were. And that's when I really knew it. I was in trouble. Okay, so I'm sitting on the couch. I'm talking about I was a little kid. I really was not a big kid. I was a little baby-faced, innocent, sweet little boy, you know, at 15. Just looked just really, really innocent. And so he went back in the room, and he come out with his shirt off. And I'm like, okay, now I'm going to have to fight this bastard. Because if he come by me, I swear I'm going to try to punch him out. I might not win, but I'm going to go down with a fight. This dude come out with his shirt off. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? I'm just going to be a minute. I'll be back. He came out. Went in the kitchen for something. And then he went back in the room. Okay? I'm sitting there like, he tripping. So I said, okay. I gave him a few more minutes. And with the way we were playing, memories, all that stuff. I'm like, oh, man. This dude playing love songs. I look out the window. I'm at the top of the of a, like a 20 or 30-story building at the top. Nowhere to go but the front door. I started to try to sneak out. But by that time, he came back in. Are you, do you like the piano? I was like, yeah, I, I like music. Yeah, you said you were a musician. I was like, yeah, I'm trying to learn. Okay, come over here and play something. I said, nah. I said, man, I really want to paint. I said, I, 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 let me call my father and let him know that that I'm down here. So he, I said, because I'm sure by now he kind of worried about where I'm at. Because this dude has messed around for about 45 minutes to an hour. And I'm like, it's going on 5 o'clock and we haven't done nothing. I'm like, are we going to paint today or not? He's like, oh, yeah, we're going to paint. I said, well, let me call my father so I can let him know what's happening. He's like, uh, well, I don't have a phone in here. I said, that's all right. They got one in the lobby. I saw the pay phone out there when we was coming up. Let me go down there and call him, and then we come back and do this paint job. He was like, well, you don't want to be my friend? I said, what do you mean, be your friend? He's like, well, you know, just be my friend. I was like, man, I didn't come down here to make friends with you. I came down here to work for you. I'm not trying to be nobody's friend. And he said, well, if you don't want to be my friend, 
Yeah, I don't think I could use you. I said, that's cool. I said, let me call my father so I can tell him where I'm at. He said, well, just hold on. Just I'll walk you downstairs. You don't have to call your father. Uh, you, you can just go back home. I said, okay, that's cool. So he came, got his, put his clothes, put his shirt on, and walked me down the elevator, you know, to the elevator. And we was in the elevator. You sure you don't want to be my friend? I was like, man, I told you, I ain't come down here to be nobody's friend. I was very direct with him. And he said, okay, then. So... I went back home, told my father what happened. And, you know, I was just as pissed at my father as I was at him because I could have got raped. I could have got killed. I could have gotten, you know, molested. This dude was, like, really big compared to me. He could have threw me off that that balcony for struggling with him. Anything could have happened to me. I could understand how my father let me get in a situation like that when he was already, you know, leery about the situation. And he had actually told me that it didn't seem right. But I said all that to say this. You know, Pedophilia is something else. We just got news last week that R. Kelly got 30 years for his activity as a pedophile. And uh, I watched a movie last week called What's the name of that movie? Um, it was an old movie. And uh, I forgot it was something eyes, some type of eyes. I don't remember, but it was a movie uh, made in the 70s. There was, there was a lot of people in that movie that turned out to be big stars, but this is an old CD film, some type of eyes. I can't remember. It was about this guy that was a pedophile that got put in prison and they murdered him because he was a pedophile. In this movie, this guy has a soliloquy where he actually describes his activity as a pedophile and how many how many little girls not women how many little girls and little boys that he manipulated into having sex with him and how he went about doing it he, he, he preferred little girls and he made a statement that he could tell after he spent five seconds with a little girl 
whether he was going to be able to have sex with her or not, whether she was going to go along with it. That was just how well he could read little kids. And it's just a subject matter that I don't think there's enough discussion on. Now, you know, people shooting up the schools is terrible. And, you know, we give a lot of attention to that. Abortion issues, we give a lot of attention to that. But pedophilia is still the elephant in the room that nobody wants to discuss, nobody wants to look at. Meanwhile, our kids are being raped and molested all the time. I watched a story last night by a woman that said that she was in her bedroom when she was eight years old and a man snatched her out of the window and ran, put her in the car, took her out in the woods, raped her, molested her at eight years old, and then cut her throat and left her to die in a wooded area. And it just so happens the more kids found her that same, uh, the next morning. She said that she laid in that field bleeding to death for 12 hours. When they caught the guy that did it, he said that he don't understand why he did it. He cannot understand why he he did that to that baby. And then he turned around and killed himself before they could have a trial. That type of thing. It's just, it doesn't get enough attention. You know, I worked as an educator. And I worked in several schools in, uh, in the Missouri, in the state of Missouri. And I'm telling you, there are definite pedophiles in the school system. There are pedophiles all through the system of the school and the church. And it's not, I'm not talking about the Catholic church either. I'm talking about the black church. The pedophiles in it. And they kind of walk brazenly among us and get away with a whole lot of things. Because they seek out professions and activities that they directly contact our kids. And they get away with a lot of stuff that we don't know. And by the time, you know, the kid has been uh, traumatized and dealt with, they hit and run. So it's crazy. It's a crazy world. All I say is watch your little kids. 
make sure you keep up with where they go and who they do, whatever activity is going to be done. Make sure you keep up with your babies. Because it's a weird, crazy world out here. Waiting to swallow them up and spit them out. 